So this time last year, uh, we shut down Main Street here in Jewett City. I work part-time for the Parks and Rec Department. I have a couple of different hats that I wear there. And one of my responsibilities last year was to help uh, the Parks and Rec Department shut down Main Street. And we honored a young man who passed away a few years ago in our community, TJ Sumner. And it was bike night. And so there was no traffic downtown. And we had a, a stage set up for music. And there were vendors out there. And uh, the bars and the restaurants were open. And it was a very cool evening. And we're, we're doing it again. Uh, I believe it's the first week in September. We're shutting down Main Street again. And the bikes will be coming in. It's a big bike night. What was interesting is as the music got pumping, I don't remember the name of the band, but it was a good time rock and roll oldie band, whatever it was. They were set up in the parking lot of Anthony's Hardware under a tent. And there's a good driving bass kick going. And after about five minutes of the bass kick going and the electric guitars and the drums and the singers and the vocals, good time rock and roll oldie, it, it, it disturbed a nest of flying black ants, the, the likes of which I've never seen before. They were friendly enough. They didn't bite. They didn't sting. They just wanted to hug you. All of them. All at the same time. And some of you might have been there that night. And what was fascinating was as literally there was a cloud of these insects that were disturbed out of their natural cycle of dormancy. And they all rose up into the air to good time rock and roll oldie and attached themselves to the hundreds of people that were there. There was a cloud. If you were standing at the town hall looking uh, west or north, whatever it is, towards the bank, like you had a hard time seeing to the end of those two blocks. There were that many, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these flying, very friendly black ants. And what was fascinating about it is everybody, it didn't matter who, uh, they were the, 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 the bikery biker of the bikers or, you know, Pastor Josh. Everybody was saying the same thing. This is biblical. Like this is straight from God's word. Like when it comes to plagues, the Bible is special. Like you don't hear people talk about plagues very often. You, you, you might hear people talk about the Black Plague. And we know that that was from fleas that were living on rats. And that's a bad thing. And so you know, we're aware of that now. And, and we know that there have been plagues through history. But the Bible kind of owns the corner on the market when it comes to plagues. Like nobody was talking about the Black Plague during the Dark Ages with these flying ants going everywhere. Everybody was remembering Bible stories from when they were kids. And I mean everybody. It was like a Bible study all centered on plagues because it was a biblical plague. Didn't matter who you were. Didn't matter how tall you were. Didn't matter what kind of deodorant you wore. Didn't matter your skin color. Didn't matter nothing about you. Didn't matter the color of your clothes. Everybody, everybody got plagued by these very friendly, hugging black ants. The book of Joel, of all the books of the Bible, probably describes in the greatest detail an actual event that took place in Israel's history, and it was, a, it was a plague. And we use the phrase biblical plague to get the idea across of just this overwhelming consequence. This, it doesn't matter, this unilateral badness that just strikes everybody at the same time in every way possible. You see, we're studying through the books of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. They're the last 12 books in the Old Testament. And, and we know that they're not called minor books of prophecy because they don't have anything important to say. We know that they're called minor books of prophecy because they're short. 
And so last week we took a look at Hosea. This week we're going to take a look at Joel. Joel is only like four chapters long. And what we're doing is we're identifying the major metaphor in each of these biblical books of prophecy, these 12 minor prophets. We're taking a quick look at what that metaphor meant for the nation of Israel or Judah in the original context. Somewhere right around five or 600 B.C. is the time frame that we're dealing with for most of these books of prophecy. And then we're taking a look at the gospel message. Specifically, we're taking a look at how New Testament authors took concepts and ideas and actual verses from the minor prophets to help explain the good news about Jesus Christ. So it's, it's all about the metaphor, the meaning, and the gospel message is our outline this morning as we study the book of Joel. So if you have your book Bible this morning, you can turn to the book of Joel. Uh, the easiest way to find the minor prophets is go past most of the Old Testament and then just start flipping through books of the Bible real quick because they're short. If you hit Matthew, you went too far. Bang a left. Ten books, and there's Joel. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are the books that we're going to be looking at. So uh, let me share with you the narrative from Joel chapter 1, and I'm just going to share the first seven verses to set the, the idea of what this metaphor was and as we start to explore its meaning. Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children and their children the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. This is the prototypical, perfect example of a biblical plague. Two points. Tell everybody you know about this, down to the fourth generation. Don't forget this. We're going to make it real memorable, right? Complete destruction. Complete destruction. I, how many kinds of locusts are there? We don't know. It's defined by the Bible. Apparently the Bible says there's like four or five different kinds of locusts. The idea is that whatever one left behind, the other one ate. Until there was absolutely nothing left. A biblical plague of destruction. The, the author, Joel, goes on to describe different sets of people who should be lamenting this biblical plague. And it's, it's, it, it's not without its element of humor. Because he starts with the, drunk, with the drunks. He starts with the drunkards. Right? This is Joel chapter 1, verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers. Because of the sweet wine, for it has been taken from your mouth. And he goes on to describe why everybody has a reason to be sad, starting with the drunks. Then he goes to the young marrieds who think they're going to have food to feed their family. Then he goes to the farmers who should be prideful of their crops. Then he goes to the leaders of Israel because they're trying to provide for the nation. Then he goes to the priests because there's no more offerings. So this is what the first chapter is about. Locusts. Creeping, swarming, jumping, hopping, yelling, screaming, shouting. Locusts. For a nation has invaded my land. He's talking about locusts. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, a locust. John the Baptist dipped in the honey and ate him as a snack. Right? That's what we're talking about. Overwhelming numbers, biblical numbers. It has the fangs of a lioness. 
It has devastated my grapevine, has splintered my fig tree. He's talking about actual fig vines and, and grape trees and the nation of Israel. He's using those terms to describe his people. My people have been destroyed in the process of the land being destroyed. It has stripped off its bark and thrown it away. Its branches have turned white. If you go on to read through the book of Joel, it describes the locust army as the perfectly trained army. In that, when they go to climb a wall, they don't break rank. They don't jostle each other. There's no shoving. There's no pushing. There's no crying out. It's as if they're in, it's like they have one mind with millions of little legs. It's like the perfect army. They all do their job in perfect synchronization. No window can keep them out. No door can keep them out. No wall is so high. He's describing as if they're mighty warriors and they're little bugs that John the Baptist dipped in honey and ate. But there's so many of them that their destruction is complete. The nation of Israel, he's reminding them, the nation of Israel completely wiped out by a locust plague. So the metaphor is a massive locust plague. The meaning of this metaphor for the nation of Israel is that the awful reality of a historic plague motivates God's people to prepare their hearts for the day of the Lord. Let me say that again. It should be on the screen as well. The meaning behind what, what, when, when, when they read this prophecy from Joel, when Joel is out in the streets delivering this message, talking about this army of locusts, the meaning for the people who initially heard this message is this. There is an awful reality of a historic plague. Remember how bad it was. Remember what happened when we were invaded by this insect army. Motivates God's people to prepare their hearts for the day of the Lord. If that's how God judged sin temporarily, because the nation of Israel, Judah, was messing up, how do you think how serious he's going to take sin when he deals with it forever? When he deals with the ultimate answer for sin, if he dealt with it with bugs the first time that destroyed the nation, where do you think he's going when it comes down to actually dealing and breaking the power of sin? Prepare for the day of the Lord. Remember what it was like when he dealt with our sin and we had the thing and we had to work it out? Think, uh, remember that and allow it to motivate you for how God is going to deal with sin when sin is actually going to be dealt with finally. In fact, Joel chapter 1, it, it was so bad. Joel chapter 1 verse 12 says this. Indeed, human joy has dried up. Like, that's biblically bad. Like, that's really bad. And, and, and this is what the text says. This is how this uh, plague affected the nation of Israel, that human joy has dried up. And the lesson for Israel was that in the pursuit of their happiness, they missed the path of joy. Let me say that again. In their pursuit of happiness, the nation of Israel missed the path of joy. The, the path of happiness has to do with what did they want, what did they think was fun, what did they think was enjoyable, how did they want to entertain themselves, how did they want to spend their time. The path of joy is defined by how does God say we should do things? How does God want things done? How should we be serving each other? How should we be loving each other? The path of happiness has a lot to do with our own thoughts, ideas, and feelings about what we want to experience that's enjoyable for ourselves that's very different from the path of joy. Now, the path of joy leads to greater happiness than we'll ever find on the path of happiness. This is the lesson that the nation of Israel had to learn, that to experience happiness, you follow the path of joy, which leads to faithfulness in God's thoughts, God's words, and God's ideas, not our own thoughts, our 
So this was the, the metaphor, a massive locust plague. So when you, you think of the, uh, the biblical book called Joel, it's, it's locusts. That's what it's about. And it was a message to the people of Israel, remember a bad time, prepare your hearts for the future so that you never have to go through something like that again. What, what, what's interesting is that this concept is used in one of the most famous passages in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. It's found in Romans chapter 10. And for those of you uh, who have taken the time to memorize uh, different important verses to help explain what it means to be a person of faith, to answer the question, I, I, I'm looking at my past and, and, and I'm, I'm done with pursuing happiness. It's time for me to pursue joy. How do I actually become a person of faith? Nine times out of ten, we turn to this passage. It's the most succinct description in the New Testament of how someone actually becomes a Christian. If you've had the privilege of praying with someone to lead them to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you probably use these verses. If you've memorized a tool like the Romans Road, which is a series of three to five different verses, sometimes seven, depending on the version that you're using, these verses are the heart and soul of the Romans Road. These are verses that we share with people who are done with the old, they're ready for the new, they've pursued their own path of happiness long enough, and they understand the power of pursuing God's path of joy. Paul writes these verses, Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. The context is, how do we become righteous in the eyes of God? I want to experience what he has for me. How is that done? Do I write a check? Do I go to church? Do I stop kicking the puppies? Do I sing really loud in church? What am I supposed to do so that I can be known as a person who is righteous in the eyes of God? Romans chapter 10 beginning in verse 9. This is Paul's answer. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's worth memorizing. Like, write that on the shower, on the window, and, and on your mirror in the fog so that every morning when you go in and take a shower, that, that verse pops up. This is a big verse, right? This is how a person expresses their faith in Jesus Christ and becomes a child of God. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Now the scripture says, everyone who believes on him, on Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, different kinds of people, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him. He quotes Joel, specifically Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Wrapping up this passage about how do you actually become a Christian, he quotes from a minor prophet with a major message. And he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's found in the book of Joel. In light of the locust plague, in light of the creeping, the jumping, the crawling, the hopping, the running, the sprinting locusts, that what one didn't eat, the other one did. In light of that complete destruction and the sapping of the joy of the nation of Israel, in light of the price and the penalty and the reality of our past sins and mistakes, call on the name of the Lord because everybody who calls will be saved. I think it's worth taking just a moment to talk about what does that mean to call 
on the name of the Lord, because there's calling and then there's calling. And, and it might be kind of helpful to think about the kind of call or to illustrate the kind of call that Paul is talking about here, because if you go back to the original context of where he quoted this passage from, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, it has to be a calling that is mindful of the reality of sin, the penalty of sin, the complete destruction of sin, the complete removal of joy. That if the calling is without that sense of what I've actually done, then you might say, maybe someone is, is, is calling, but it's not a clear call. And so in, in hopes of identifying the clearest call possible and making a little bit of memory here, I have a couple of recordings that I would like you to listen to. Now, parents, you're probably going to have a visceral reaction to this sound that I'm going to play. It's distressing. There's four distressing sounds. But you and I know, as moms and dads, that there's crying and then there's crying. Here's an example of crying. What's that baby doing right now? He's laughing, crying, crying, laughing. This is not a call to salvation. This is a crackpot. He's crying about something, but it's probably not about something that he's truly miserable about because then he's giggling. Babies do this. Next cry. What's that cry? What do we think? hungry. Is that the hungry cry, honey? That's the hungry cry. Yeah. We know what to do with that. That's not a cry from, you know, that's just, I'm hungry. Just feed me. That's what that cry means. It doesn't mean save me from my past life of sin and destruction. Save me from the evil that's taking place in my life right now. That's for the love of God, whatever you're doing, stop it and feed me. That's what that cry is. It's very helpful, but that's not a cry of salvation. Next cry. What do we think this cry is about? Yeah. He's not happy about something. Specifically, I believe this is a baby who just needs to go to sleep. Like, just give up already. I've put the magic plug in your mouth and you're spitting it out. That was dumb. Suck on the magic plug. Go to sleep. That's not a cry of salvation. That's not a cry of something evil is happening to me right now, and dear God, save me from it. This one is different. That's the worst part. That's a vaccination cry. The baby got a shot in his hip. That was the initial cry. The worst cries have a gap, right? The worst cries are when the baby is like, oh dear God, what is happening right now? This is really bad. And then it really starts. These are the baby. That's hard, huh? Man. Oh, that's a tough one. That's a cry of something's happening right now and I never want it to happen again. You know your baby's crying when there's a gap because they're thinking about something. They're processing something. They just got hurt so bad, it actually shocked them, and now they're crying. And they need comfort. That is a cry of salvation. For, according to Joel, as quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, 
concerning salvation, the home run verse in the New Testament, what do I actually do? What do I feel like? What do I sound like when I'm crying out to the Lord? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the cry. There was a gap. There was a pause. I was thinking about something. I remember the price of my sin. I remember the destruction that was caused by my sin. I remember the distress of my sin, not only in my life, but in those that I know and love. That is a cry for salvation. Now, there's plenty of reasons to cry out to the Lord, and, and you and I know that many of us have cried out in this way to the Lord, and we've become Christians and we're men and women of faith. That doesn't mean we stop crying out to the Lord. It just means that uh, we're, we're cry laughing, we're, we're, we're hungry, you know, maybe we just need to, to go to bed. You know, we continue to cry to the Lord, but that cry that, that Paul is talking about here that he quotes from the book of Joel, that's a special cry, and what makes it special is that there's a pause for reflection. There's a reaction, and then there's a pause, and then the real weeping begins, the real crying begins, and that's the person that the Lord responds to with salvation. Here's how Joel says it in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. I don't know if I have these words on the screen or not. But this is what Joel says. He says, rend your hearts, not your clothes. You see, in the time of the Bible, a, a way to show that you were grieving about something, that you were repenting of something, that you were truly sorry about something, is you would rend your outer garment. You, you had a robe, and then you had an inner garment, and you would rip that outer garment and expose your undergarment. And it was acknowledged as a sign of grieving. Uh, a few weeks ago, when we took a look at the book of Jonah, when Jonah preached God's word of judgment to Jonah, to, to Nineveh, the people, starting with the king, rent their garments. It, it's, it's, a, it's a sign, a common sign in biblical times that someone is grieving. God says here, stop tearing your clothes. Tear your heart. Why? Because it's easy to rip your clothes. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. But a broken heart, a ripped up heart, is a changed life. And this is how Joel says it. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a call, it's a repentant call, reflecting on the tragedy that was a result of our sin. And it involves ripping our hearts, not our outward appearance. Because a, a ripped heart, a damaged heart, a grieving heart is a changed life. Why is God, is God just a big meanie? Like, what is up with these minor prophets? Like, this is only the second week, and there's ten more. Like, what is up with all of this weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and destruction? Like, is he just like Captain Ahab? Is he just, like, really stern? Is, is like, he has no funny bone? Like, what is the deal with God with this seriousness? Like, woo! If the Bible is a message of joy, why is God mad all the time? If, if the Bible is a message of joy... Why are 12 books of the Bible about, like, do this or else, locusts, gnashing teeth, and all this stuff? Reflection of our past negative consequences of our behavior, of our sin, leads to a joyful and preferred future. God knows that there is no path of joy without beginning with repentance. And so that's where the good news starts. It's good news. It is a message of joy. But it starts with repentance, understanding uh, the price of our salvation, and it leads to a preferred future. The other thought that contributes to this is, is God is not a big meanie. 
He's not a bit, you know, he has a funny bone. He is a God of joy. He's the creator of the planet. He's playing a joke on us tomorrow. He's taking out the sun for about two hours. Like, he thinks that's funny. So he absolutely had a sense of humor. Once upon a time, I was uh, teaching Benaiah to drive. He's an excellent driver. He's always had great mechanical aptitude. But when he first started, he was so concerned about oncoming traffic that he felt that he had to drive with one wheel in the ditch. And in the ditch, there are sticks and there are rocks. There are pedestrians. There are dogs. There are storm grates. There's all kinds of interesting things on the right-hand side of the road that you don't need to drive over. And so you have to develop this comfort level with oncoming traffic and, you know, not doing this number. Because your dad's sitting in the right seat. And he has two perspectives that the new driver does not have. Number one, he can see what we're about to hit with his car. And number two, he knows more about driving. Your dad has a perspective of what it means to be a driver that the new driver doesn't have. It's all new to the new driver. To the moms and the dads, we get it. And so we have a perspective of the danger of jerking the car to the right that the new driver does not have. And so we freak out a little bit. We stomp on imaginary brakes. We yell. We scream. We grab for the steering wheel. We smack our child across the face. We pull this car over right now. No, don't pull it over right there. You can't pull it over there. That obviously, it's not obvious to them. They're a new driver. Because we have a perspective of years and years and years and years of driving and the dangers of driving poorly that the new driver does not have. That's exactly how God feels about sin. We don't take it as serious as God does. And so God has to do some things to help us take it seriously. And these things lead to a path of repentance, which then places on the path of joy. Joy that blows happiness out of the water. Joy that makes happiness seem cheap and bubbly. But it begins with repentance. God is not a killjoy. God is not trying to be a big idiot. He's, he's not trying to be mean and nasty. And, and, and he's not looking to, to, to smite us with great asminity and resend the locusts. But he is very serious about plunging us to the path of repentance so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Kept from the consequences of driving in the ditch. As I I wrap up our time together this morning, Joel is quoted one other time in the New Testament. Joel is quoted on the birthday of the church. Peter and the apostles were meeting in the upstairs room. They were being obedient to Jesus Christ. He said, boys, I'm going to leave. Don't go anywhere until you receive the comforter, until the power of the Holy Spirit drops on you. Don't do anything. Hang out. And so they did. They waited. They prayed together. And we find in Acts chapter 1, going to Acts chapter 2, that the presence of God for the first time in history dropped unilaterally on every person in the room as they cried out in faith. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and all kinds of crazy stuff started happening. Stuff that Joel had talked about 500 years ahead of time. And so the the party goes out into the street and they're talking in languages that they never trained in. And they're saying things that are obviously being recognized as the words and the power of God. And a crowd gathers and says, are you drunk? Like, this is craziness going on right now. Are you actually talking a language that I just can't understand? Or are you just blithering because you're stoned high out of your brain? Peter goes, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. These men are not drunk. This is actually what's happening. And he quotes from the book of Joel. I'm reading from Acts chapter 2.
beginning in verse 17. And it will be in the last days, says God. He's quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. That I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. And he continues at length to quote from the book of Joel. Describing exactly what happens when someone cries out and calls upon the name of the Lord. And they are saved in response to that call. In response to that reflected call, the call that comes because we're thinking about the consequences and the damage and the, the reality that took place because of our own sinful behavior, that call gets answered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Joel, when the Apostle Paul is trying to help people understand what it means to be a man or a woman of faith, he encourages them to call out in light of their past, to go there, to think about it, to dwell on it to pause, to reflect, to repent, cry out, and then the answer to that prayer for salvation comes through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And what happens biblically is that plague is replaced by purpose. Plague is replaced by purpose. The big idea this morning is that everyone who calls in faith in light of the devastating effects of their sin will be filled with the power and spirit of God. And plague is replaced by purpose. One final verse, and then we're done this morning. It's from the book of Joel. This particular verse is not quoted in the New Testament, but it's the context, it's the preceding context of the verses that we've been looking at this morning. It comes from Joel chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. Here's God's promise to his people when they call out to him. Listen to this promise. It's the kind of thing that only God can do. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate. The young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust. The great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of Yahweh, your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. When a person cries out in a repentant call of faith, the answer comes from God by the power of the Holy Spirit and replaces plague with purpose. So powerful purpose that it's as if none of this, the stuff that we feel so guilty and terrible about has ever happened. We begin to see God's redemptive purpose in that stuff. And we may never be grateful for it, but plague is replaced with purpose through the power of the Holy Spirit after a repentant cry of faith. The book of Joel, that's pretty cool, huh? Has to do with little bugs that John dipped in honey and smacked on them. Powerful, powerful metaphor what God can do with a repentant cry of faith. And maybe this morning, you know, some part of, of God's word touched you and you realize that you've never made that repentant cry. This would be a great time to make that repentant cry, cry out to the Lord. That's the prayer, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus puts an end to sin. That's what puts an end to sin. Have a day of the Lord, right here, right now, and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And maybe this morning, you know, you've been a Christian for a while, but you're looking back on something in your life that, that looks, smells, and feels like a plague. 
swarming, creeping, running, jumping, biting, nasty plague. Allow the Lord to use that experience through the power of his Holy Spirit to bring healing and restitution to your life this morning. Give him a hungry cry. Give him a, give him a cranky cry. Just cry out to him. And he will continue to use the power of his Holy Spirit in your life. It'll be as if those years were restored as the biblical promise from the book of Joel. So I'm going to pray this morning. We're going to have an opportunity to worship one more time together as a, as a church. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of your word. We can't make this stuff up. None of us have ever thought of anything that powerful. That, that your path of joy can be so, it makes happiness look cheap. But Father, we're so tempted to, to chase after what's happy and we make selfish decisions and foolish decisions. And some of us can think on those things. Father, thank you for the power and the blessing of your word. Father, I pray that we would be a people who would cry out after pausing and reflecting 